Hello everybody in podcast land, this is STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham. I am back today for episode two in my lobotomy miniseries. So let's get started. Let's dig in to the meat and potatoes of this lobotomy miniseries. My first introduction to psychosurgery and lobotomy was when I was in nursing school taking my psychology class. It really got my attention. I wanted to learn more about lobotomy and psychosurgery, so I had to go to the library and do some reading and research. We didn't have the internet back in the day, back in the early 90s, that I could easily access to find out more information. So fast forward 15 years or so, I saw a picture, it was a black and white picture of a little boy who had two black and very swollen eyes. His eyes were almost swollen shut. And this picture was really disturbing to me. I thought, who is this little boy and what happened to him? So I wanted to find out some more. And I read further and I found out that his name was Howard Dully. And he was 12 years old. 12 years old when he had this picture taken because he had just had a lobotomy from Dr. Freeman. Dr. Freeman liked to take pictures before, during, and after surgery. In fact, there is a picture of Howard Dolly with two ice picks or what was the tool that he was using at the time, which was basically an ice pick sticking out of his eye sockets. Dr. Freeman would often walk away and have someone else hold on to the ice picks so he could take the picture himself. I was disgusted and horrified and outraged by the horrible abuse at the hands of a doctor. And it began my obsession on finding out everything that there was to know about this doctor, his patient victims, and that period of time in psychiatry. Just a little bit about myself, I'm gonna jump up on my soapbox for a second, but this is really important to me. As you know, my career has been as an emergency room nurse and one of the most neglected client populations that come in through into the eMERGE are patients that have mental illness. And they're often very afraid to come in because they're afraid of the stigma or if they come in and they're so unwell, maybe with delusions, hallucinations, just very unwell, suicidal, they don't get treated as if they have a real disease, a real acute problem. Now, luckily most of the people that I've worked with do see it as such, but unfortunately there are still some nurses and doctors that stigmatize these patients. I'm an advocate for mental health and wellness. In fact, I volunteer yearly in a walk for borderline personality disorder. I advocate and did everything I could for the people who would come into the hospital for help or crisis. I fought for them to get excellent and fair care. And this mini series exposes horrors in the history of psychiatry. And it's also important to talk about what's happening now 
today, every chance that we get. So getting back to what I was saying, some of Walter Freeman's patients are still alive, like Howard Dulley. And his story needs to be told again and again and again. And I will be doing an episode on his life in episodes to follow. I want to start off by talking about Alice Hood Hammett. In September 1936, Alice Hood Hammett was in recovery after having brain surgery. It was the first of its kind to be performed in the U.S., and it was called the prefrontal lobotomy. Alice was resting elevated in bed post-op to reduce the bleeding in her brain. Her vital signs were being monitored, and she had been incontinent of urine, and she had vomited. The neurologist, Dr. Walter Freeman, who participated and chose Alice to have this surgery, stood over her bed impatiently waiting for her to wake up. He wanted to see if his first medical, his first human medical experiment was a success. He examined her eyes and saw that her pupils were equal in size and reacted appropriately to light. Her face showed no signs of paralysis or drooping. The reflexes in her knees and feet were normal. Four hours post-op, the anesthetic had fully worn off and she was able to open her eyes and focus. Alice, expressionless, stated that she felt better. She could name her husband and his occupation. She knew her address and could identify objects from around the room. The next day she was alert and awake and sitting up. And when asked how she was feeling, she answered in a zombie-like voice that she was happy and that she couldn't remember why she was even sad. Her hands were in constant motion, rubbing them together, touching her face and arms like she was trying to dry, her, dry herself off. And over the next couple days, she seemed to continue to improve. She was alert and able to read, and her appetite was good. She slept well and seemed to have little anxiety. Normally fastidious with her appearance, she cared not at all that her head was shaved, which is quite significant because she was obsessed with her hair prior to surgery. Meanwhile, Dr. Walter Freeman, a neurologist, and his partner, Dr. James Watch, a neurosurgeon, the doctors who had performed the surgery were vigorously congratulating themselves on their brilliance, their great success mere days after performing the experimental surgery, the first of its kind. I know I've said it before, but I'm trying to drive it home because here they are, congratulating themselves, patting themselves on the back, expressing how wonderful and amazing and brilliant they are. And this was an experimental surgery, first one ever done. And when it comes to brain surgery, it can take weeks, months, and even years to really have a good idea whether it was a successful surgery or not. The brain doesn't heal like a paper cut overnight. It takes a long time. So it shows their level of arrogance and irresponsibility and preemptive declaration of success. Walter Freeman specifically went 
to George Washington University to become a professor, but also to work as a physician in the hospital. And his reasons why, and I quote, fame and fortune beckon me to Washington. I want to do a case study on Alice. A case study is when you give the patient's history, generally from childhood to adulthood, or up until they come into the hospital. It'll give medical history, psychiatric, mental health history, and also some family history. So you can get an idea of things running in the family, etc. Alice Hood Hammett was the youngest daughter of pioneer parents. She was very spoiled and always got her way, usually through temper tantrums. She was reported to always have anxiety and depression, and this gave her ulcers and emotional breakdowns. She got married to Theodore Dudley Hammett in her mid-twenties. He was an even-keeled patient and steady man with a good job. Her first pregnancy was a nightmare. I'm thinking that she had postpartum depression. She had anxiety and suicidal thoughts. And then this child died at two years old. And it makes me wonder if this child had failure to thrive because his mother had terrible postpartum depression and just wasn't getting the love that they needed. Either way, it's a very tragic situation, tragic death. The next two pregnancies were slightly better and those children had survived, they lived. But she continued to get worse. She was immovable, she was a perfectionist housewife and horrible to her children and her husband. At this time in her life, her sister and brother-in-law died from a murder-suicide and this made her much worse. And also at the same time, she developed a crush on another man and she would taunt her husband with it. She would stand and grimace at herself in the mirror, pee on the floor, and stand nude in front of windows and expose herself to the neighborhood. So clearly this woman was very unwell. In my mind's picture, I see that she may have multiple mental health issues or mental health illnesses going on at the same time. As per Dr. Freeman would quote about her, she was a typical, insecure, rigid, emotional, claustrophrenic individual in thought, vain, afraid of getting old, and overly concerned about her thinning hair. She was a master of bitching and really led her husband a dog's life. She would worry if he was a few minutes late coming in from the office and raise the roof when things did not suit her. So these were his quotes about his patient. As you can hear from his quotes, he felt a lot of distaste towards this woman. He clearly did not like her, and he was very insulting, uncompassionate, and inappropriate with his assessment. This was his approach to all his patients. So he clearly had disdain for them. He was arrogant uh, with well-defined sociopathic traits. In fact, I believe he was a uh, textbook case. He was callous with lack of em empathy, narcissistic with grandiose self-worth, lack of remorse and guilt. He was impulsive and irresponsible. He had a conning and manipulative uh, nature, and he had poor behavioral controls. 
all of which will play themselves out as the story progresses. His behaviors and actions will disgust and horrify you. At least they do with me. The more that I learned about this man, the more that I grew to hate him. That's right. I said the words. Hate him. Don't know him, but I wish we would have met in a dark alley. <laughs> and I'm a nonviolent person. Anyway. So in Dr. Freeman's case, and I hate calling him Dr. Freeman because in my mind, he ain't no doctor. He doesn't behave like a doctor. He doesn't care like a doctor. And his purposes are not what falls under the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm. Dr. Walter Freeman, or maybe we'll just call him Walter or Freeman, did not believe in medical history or even doing a physical exam. He called this veterinary medicine. He made a decision to lobotomize based on a brief description on how easy it would be to get consent. He wanted to do as many lobotomies as possible. For his goal of success and glory, he needed to have a volume of surgeries done to prove its validity. It was quite easy for him to get patients. One of the biggest problems to plague the hospital in the early to mid-1900s was that the psychiatric hospitals and asylums were overcrowded and the conditions were horrible. 43% of discharges came by way of death. Just think about that. Almost half of the patients left by dying. It was a time when psychiatric treatment was stagnant while the hospitals kept filling up. Walter Freeman, being the opportunist that he was, saw this as the perfect situation to empty hospitals of its chronic patients. Walter knew that this form of surgery would not be well received. The only patients that he would likely get for this operation were the ones considered hopeless from the hospitals that were most desperate due to overcrowding. This all worked in his favor. He admittedly stated that this surgery was not a cure. It was a means for a patient to be easier to care for and maybe earn a living. At best, they could work a menial job or contribute somewhat to the household through housework, and at worst, they would die. Either way, they would be less or not at all a nuisance to their caregivers. The patients themselves could not give informed consent. This was left at the discretion of a greedy sociopath a.k.a. Walter Freeman, or a family member whose intentions were dubious at best. Could there be a more perfect scenario for him? He knew and jumped on it like a lion on a lamb. Walter was currently working at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington. Walter got the position as head of the lab by his famous grandfather, W.W. Keene. W.W. Keene was a pretty amazing guy. He was one of the best surgeons of his time. And I'm going to talk about him a bit later. And you'll be amazed by 
how different the two were. Walter Freeman was a very privileged and entitled child, young man, and adult. And he pretty much achieved most things or got to where he was through that and not by actual hard work. His grandfather had spoken to the Surgeon General at the time and was able to get him a sweet job as a head of the lab at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. He didn't really want this position. It wasn't prestigious enough for him. He felt that he deserved to be a professor while also having hospital privileges to work with patients. Two really important things here. First of all, he wasn't a physician yet and he had no experience. So to get this sweet job as head of a lab at St. Elizabeth's Hospital was pretty amazing. But this guy in all his arrogance decided when he was going to Washington to stop in at Yale University where he went to school for an interview to get a job as a professor and a physician through the hospital and university. He went straight to one of his professors and pretty much asked him for a job. Now this professor, as you'll find out later, couldn't stand Walter and was just incredulous that this guy would show up and pretty much demand a position. And Walter could not believe it that he wasn't given it. So he left there with his tail between his legs and went to St. Elizabeth's. His grandfather didn't know anything about it, unfortunately. This is how this dude worked. So while at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, when he first went there, he was absolutely disgusted by the people and the conditions. Underlined the people. He didn't see sick individuals. He saw dirty, you know, mentally unwell patients. He was meant to run the lab. So it was no big deal for him to skip the whole patient one-on-one -on -one connection and go straight to work in the lab until, until he found out about this procedure being performed in Portugal by Edgis Moniz. And he wanted a piece of that. And he thought he was going to have no problem getting all the patients that he wanted until he ran into Dr. William White. He was the hospital superintendent and he refused to allow Walter to perform lobotomy at the hospital. Dr. White was a pretty, pretty good guy. He really cared about his patients. He was in a bad position because there was no money to be had. He wasn't given much, if anything, to work with to help the patients. There wasn't any real treatment other than psychoanalysis maybe some medications and some pretty bad treatments of the time. But one thing he did do is he, he abolished the use of physical restraints in the hospital and stopped some of the worst experimental treatments or nasty treatments that I talked about in a prior episode going on in the hospital. He really did his best to try to improve the situation and he was going to be damned to allow Walter 
to start doing human experimentations on this patient. And Dr. Freeman was stunned by this. He just couldn't believe he wouldn't be allowed to have access to the patients. But when he saw that he had fame and fortune right in front of him, by the way of lobotomy, he focused his sights on the patients. The patients that he wanted nothing to do with when he first started working at the hospital because he thought of them to be vile and pathetic. Nice guy, huh? But let's just step back here for one minute and talk about these so-called vile and pathetic human beings. People that were sick and being forced to live in the worst possible conditions. Taken there by family, police, doctors, and just left there basically to die. These hospitals, if you want to call them, asylum sanitariums were overcrowded and filthy. Urine and feces were everywhere. People were often found naked, wandering the hospital or sleeping on the floors nude. They were malnourished and over-medicated. They were left unbathed in filthy clothes. Their behaviors were left unchecked. All patients were housed together and painted with the same brush, regardless of what their illness was. Depression, schizophrenia, OCD, alcoholism, PTSD, physical or mental disabilities, Alzheimer's, brain injuries, behavior problems, young and old alike. There was little or no supervision. There was violence among staff to patients, patients to patients, and patients to staff. There was no education or stimulating activities. The death toll was incredibly high and the families were just waiting for these, these people to die. The hospitals and the staff saw themselves only as custodians, not caregivers whose purpose was to bring about wellness or comfort. Even though the conditions were horrific, William A. White still tried to improve the lives of the patients in their living conditions. White called lobotomy surgery spurious and irresponsible. White said to Freeman, quote, Freeman, it'll be a hell of a long time before I let you operate on any of my patients, end of quote. White questioned the ability of a mentally ill patient to competently authorize a hazardous procedure like a lobotomy, and he knew his patient's families might not might have ulterior motives for allowing the surgery. This is what he was recorded of saying. Relatives not infrequently desire the death of patients in hospitals. And I don't mean that they do this consciously, although I have no doubt that they do this in many cases, but that they do so in the back of their heads. There is no question because these, six, because these sick people cause them tremendous amount of trouble. As awful as that sounds, I, see, I can see the truth in it, especially in those times. Here's an example of a comment written on the consent form of a patient. Her name was Helene Strauss. She was a patient at an elite hospital. And this is what her daughter wrote. 
I fully realize that this operation will have little effect on her mental condition, but I am willing to have it done in the hope that she will be more comfortable and easier to care for. And that kind of sums it up. The patient will be easier to care for. Dr. White, the superintendent, was an ethical physician. There was no money and the culture of the staff, doctors, nurses, and families there was that there could be little done for the mentally unwell. But he was wise enough to see that Walter Freeman was trying, what he was trying to do was unethical, untested, and irresponsible. Walter really thought that Dr. White would welcome this procedure with open arms, and he was sorely disappointed when he met strong resistance. He couldn't understand why. Freeman and Watts believed that their patients were so sick and hopeless that they had nothing else to lose. He tried to promote this operation to the Medical Society of the District of Columbia. He gained little interest there. In fact, most psychiatrists were appalled that he even suggested this surgical procedure. There had been a long debate between organic-based treatment and psychological treatment. In other words, psychosurgery versus talk therapy or other types of treatments that the basis and cause of mental illness was from something physically wrong with the brain. That was at the root of psychosurgery and biological causes of mental illness at the time. So when Freeman suggested operating and destroying healthy brain tissue to cure depression and many other illnesses, the Psychiatric Society was appalled. Psychiatrists and critics stated, it was unethical to harm healthy brain tissue even in the hopes that beneficial results would follow. Even further, that playing with a patient's personality amounted to tampering with his or her human essence. Another physician was quoted that lobotomy threatened to alter a patient's emotions, sense of altruism, and sense of humor, all traits that separate humans from animals. Freeman and Watts admitted that they would be cutting into and destroying healthy brain tissue. Watts was quoted as saying, which is better, to damage the brain a bit and get the patient out of the hospital or do nothing? Well, in this case, I say do nothing. And getting the patient out of the hospital, did he mean feet first? Ah, oh. I can't believe the things that they had the audacity to say and believed. Freeman even went so far to say that, get this, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> you can't see me, but I'm shaking my head, rolling my eyes, and trying not to make noises with my hands. Maybe it will be shown that a mentally ill patient can think more clearly and more constructively with less brain tissue in actual operation. That's right, cutting out healthy tissue, having less brain, makes your brain work better. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? In what world does this make any sense? Let's take a minute to discuss what exactly a lobotomy is. I'm gonna give a little, short, tiny, I promise, 
little anatomy of the brain. There are six major sections of the brain. The frontal lobe, which is for thinking, memory, behavior, and movement. And it's roughly behind your forehead and the top half part of your brain. Then there's the parietal lobe, where it's language and touch. Then you have your temporal lobe, which is over your, and around your temples, behind the back of your ears, and that's for hearing, learning, and feelings. You've got your occipital lobe, which is used for sight, and that's sort of the back of your head, the lower po portion to where your kind of head rounds out to where the little bump is. You have your cerebellum, which is for balance and coordination of muscles, and it lies underneath the occipital lobe. <laughs> Supercalifragilisticexpia. Uh, God bless you. Achoo. <laughs> then there's the brainstem. And that regulates breathing, heart rate, and temperature. And it's the lowest part of your brain into the neck. So with a leucotomy, also known as lobotomy, it means the cutting of white matter. You're disconnecting the prefrontal cortex from most of the rest of your brain. So the prefrontal cortex is the front part of the frontal lobe. So you're cutting and scraping away most of the connections to the rest of the brain to stop communication to the rest of the brain. So what does that mean? This area, to go into a little bit more depth, controls motor fun function, problem solving, spontaneity, memory, language, initiation, judgment, impulse control, social and sexual behaviors. Your personality is formed there and where we can carry out higher mental functions such as planning, language, and being able to speak fluently. That's right. We're destroying, not we're, they would be destroying that part of the brain, cutting the connections that affect all those things. So you can have any number of those side effects. Just, I'm gonna, I, I gotta just read off a little bit more of a list here because it's just horrible what this guy was willing to do for his own personal gain. Physically, you could have bleeding, slurred speech, infection, loss of senses, inability to speak, death, be suicidal, incontinent, which means lose control of your bladder and bowels, paralysis, seizures, migraines, slurred speech, memory loss, obesity, brain damage. You can't take care of yourself or your finances. So for your personality, it decreases your intellect. You have a loss of self-control, decreased spontaneity, alcohol abuse is increased, dull personality, inability to work, confusion. You don't care about your hygiene or your appearance. You become violent or you can become violent. Inhibition, rudeness, decreased concentration, unable to be responsible. Some people turn into absolute chatterboxes, non-stop talking. Or, and also have infantile behaviors, temper tantrums, can be gullible or have that flat effect, that zombie effect. Can you imagine any combination of these things will occur?
in a very small level or a very large level, but this is what you get. So as you can see, there is a real medical and ethical dilemma here. Like I spoke earlier about when Dr. Freeman took this to the board and what their thoughts were. You really are playing with a person's essence. Not just what they're given at birth or, or have the right to have as any human being, but you're taking away, I believe, what can amount to who they are, who their essence is, what their personality is. And for some people, they may see that as their soul. Well, that's kind of controversial, but I think you follow me. Let's get back to Alice Hood Hammett. So Dr. Freeman saw Alice as the perfect specimen. That's right, specimen, because he didn't see these, these people as human. They were just subjects. So she was a perfect specimen to do his first experimental procedure. And he was obsessed with glory. When he became aware of this new and controversial procedure that was being performed in Portugal, he jumped on it. Edgis Moniz was a neurologist who had been performing psychosurgery in Lisbon, Portugal. He developed and was experimenting with a new procedure that he called a lacotomy, later to be called a lobotomy by Walter Freeman. After Egis Monis performed his ninth lobotomy, the director of the hospital, Bombarda Asylum, refused to allow Monis to perform any further surgeries, any further lobotomies. The director was also a psychiatrist, and other psychiatrists were outraged by this surgery, much like what would happen with Walter in the future in the US. There are a lot of similarities between these two. It's almost a doppel doppelganger. It's very, very, um, very creepy. We'll get into that a little bit later. It's fascinating in a crappy way. Once Walter had his mindset on performing the surgery in the US, he had to find the perfect patient. And he found this patient at George Washington Hospital where he was working as a physician and a professor. Because like I said earlier, Dr. William White would not allow him to any, perform any surgeries at St. Elizabeth's Asylum. So after practicing on a few cadaver brains, he felt that he was ready to perform the surgery on human subjects. That's right, practice on a couple of cadavers and yeah, we're ready to go on, on human beings. But of course, like I said, they were not human beings to him. God, I don't like this guy. I'm going to go as far as saying I hate this man. <sighs> so as you know, that patient was Alice Hammett. Earlier, I'd left off telling Alice's story up to a few days post-op. So the surgery did not go as well as Walter let on. There were no major problems during the surgery until the very end. So while making his last cut, he severed a blood vessel and caused extensive bleeding in the brain. And they were lucky that they were able to stop it. It was a close call. And I think the thing that he didn't take into consideration is that humans, unlike cadavers, bleed. 
Six days post-op, Alice became disoriented, excited, and began stuttering. She seemed to understand what was being said, but she had difficulty talking. She couldn't write or spell. She had that flat zombie effect. In other words, she was emotionless. She started with the rubbing and the rolling of the hand movements again, as she had prior to surgery. All these symptoms are indicative of frontal lobe trauma. Alice eventually went home with only marginal improvement and a damaged brain. But most of her symptoms remained. So you tell me, do you think this surgery was necessary? Do you think it was helpful? Was it successful? I think that Alice Hood Hammett was a victim of human medical experimentation. I think that she suffered horrors at the hands of Dr. Walter Freeman. I'm going to stop here because there's so much more to talk about. Coming up next episode, we're going to talk about some more case studies and also delve back into the past of Walter Freeman. How did this guy become the way he was? His life story is absolutely fascinating and it will give you chills because he showed signs from the get-go that he was a sociopath, psychopath himself. So I look forward to sharing that with you guys. Now it's time for the suture-roo. Sit down on that stretcher over there. Look around the room. You're not going to see any blood-soaked sheets or splatters on the wall because I clean up my messes. If these walls could talk. But I will get you a pillow. Even though pillows are on short supply. <laughs> and I'll get you to put your feet up and let me weave you a wild, weird, wacky, true story that I experienced while I worked in the ER. Okay, so this story is a little R-rated. So if you have any kids in the room, I'm going to ask you to consider having them leave the room or listen to it later. And if you get offended by things of a sexual nature, maybe I'll, you'll get you to turn this off or fast forward a couple minutes. Okay? So you've been warned. I call this story, Things That Go Blank in the Night. The following is a story that you will likely only encounter between one, five o'clock in the morning. If someone comes into the ER walking funny and looking embarrassed and don't want to sit down, you're usually, usually dealing with a foreign object situation. Usually, something is stuck in an orifice somewhere. One Christmas Eve, a well-dressed, attractive woman came into the ER walking funny and laughing nervously. I was thinking, oh boy. What do we have here? I asked her to have a seat 
and she declined. And then I, you know, kind of had an idea that we were going to be dealing with something interesting here. So I proceeded to do her vital signs, which is pulse, temperature, blood pressure, and rate of breathing. Her pulse and her blood pressure were slightly elevated, but otherwise stable. As I was doing her vital signs, I asked her what brought her into the ER. And she looked at me sheepishly and said, I've got something stuck in my bum. Oh boy, I thought. I asked her what she had stuck in her bum. And she told me that she had a blinking Christmas tree shaped adult toy stuck in her rectum. I called the charge nurse right away to have her seen as soon as possible because this could be a medical emergency. She could have perforated her bowel and caused any type of very serious injury. It turned out that she was okay though. And they were able to remove the festive dildo and she was sent home. And since she was okay, I don't feel too bad laughing at the fact that the dildo was still blinking when they took the x-rays. And the image was, well, lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> Bad joke, I know. Forgive me. And that's the end of my story for today. Thank you for coming in and relaxing with me in the suture room. Can't wait to see you next week. No appointment needed. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me on STAT. Shocking traumas and treatments. Or sometimes, even the cure can kill you. <laughs>